I want to ask all of you, brethren, who are here regularly, I want to ask you again sincerely because we sometimes forget this. We've just sent out the largest semi-annual letter we've ever sent out to the entire mailing list, about 300,000. So please pray about that. Those letters have not even arrived. A few of them might have, but I haven't heard of any who have arrived yet. So please pray that God will bless that letter and move people to read it and move people to respond. That can be a good thing and a reasonably big thing for the work. Certainly prophetic events are moving along, and a lot of you know that, and it is interesting to follow. And I just want to point out the fact that uh, certainly the article I wrote on the future of democracy about three years ago is certainly coming about where I said there will be no democracy in Iraq or in most of the Middle East, certainly no democracy at all in a few years. But the U.S. News and World Report, the latest one, says in this main article on April 9th, 2003, the world watched as the U.S. Marines and Iraqi citizens toppled an opposing statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad's Ferdo Square. Three and a half years later, the promise of democracy in Iraq seems a cruel joke. So they call it a cruel joke. And the administration in Washington that launched the invasion seems utterly bereft of values, or of clues, I should say, as to how to sort out uh, the mess. So it is a shame, but they are not having success there. And, of course, our nation is being disgraced more and more by what is happening over there. Right now, Vice President of the United States, Mr. Cheney, is in, as you know, uh, Egypt, and he's trying to bring about something there. Uh, he's in Saudi Arabia, I mean, trying to work with the leaders of that nation to help us against the Shiite Muslims. The Shiites and the Sunnis, of course, are different, and the Sunnis are mainly the ones in Africa, including uh, Egypt and uh, Saudi Arabia and many other places. They outnumber the Shiites, but the Shiites are the ones in Iran, and they're beginning to take over the Middle East, and the Sunni Muslims are worried about that and might even actually like us, if we would wipe out the Iranian uh, atomic sites. I doubt if we're going to do that, but there have been articles suggesting that, that they would even like that secretly. They wouldn't want to admit it, but they don't like, and they're afraid of what the Shiites are starting to do. President Bush is in Amman, Jordan, and that could be a very dangerous trip, as you know, going right into a, uh, an area there that could uh, you know, result in tragedy. Pope Benedict Tuesday is heading for Turkey, and he's going to be in Turkey several days, a Muslim country. That could result in some very great upheavals depending upon what he says. He's going to be walking on eggs, so to speak, but that's something to watch also. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar fell a great deal the last few days, and it broke through the 130 level, briefly through the 131 level, and the dollar keeps going on down. The euro, I should say, broke through this level. And they're going on up as the dollar goes on down. So this is something that ties in very much with prophecy, which we've been talking about for a long time. U.S. prestige around the world is going down. And as that happens, the dollar goes down. So people who don't believe in prophecy are going to be looking at it right square in the eyes pretty soon as these events keep on happening in the specific way that we've talked about for the last 57 years. I came to Ambassador College 57 years ago, and I heard Mr. Armstrong talking about a coming power in Europe that would rise up and would be sat on eventually by the great false church, 
And we see the stirrings of that today with the Muslims getting together and the Europeans realizing they're going to have to get together more powerfully to stop that. And the king of the south is going to form down there in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, one of those nations south of Jerusalem. And that's going to be a threat to the king of the north as that develops. And that's going to be very exciting to watch. Very exciting to watch. This pope may begin to do some really big moves far beyond what any pope has done thus far. Or he may be a caretaker pope. As we know, he's three and a half years older than I am, so he's already 79, and a new pope may come in. But these are things that are going to happen and are beginning to happen already. Meanwhile, this work of God must grow a great deal in power. We've got to grow. And as I speak to you, brethren, here, and I would like to mention to our visitors, I'm speaking not just to you but to the camera here, most of our brethren around the world will hear this in four to six weeks from now. So even though our attendance here is a little, little, uh, little less today than usual, I always encourage myself with the fact that we have several thousand others who will be hearing it around the world several weeks later. But we do need and will be, as we are continuing to walk with God, if we do that, we will grow a great deal in power. We must do that. Somewhere on this earth, there's going to be a church of God that will get out a powerful warning to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Israel about the coming great tribulation. They will be preaching what we call the Ezekiel message with increasing power. They will talk specifically about the major events that are going to happen, and they will talk about the coming kingdom of God or government of God soon to be set up on this earth, based, of course, on God's Ten Commandments and that whole way of life. We are servants of the living God, and the reward that is awaiting us if we do our job is absolutely awesome. And we don't ever want to give up and quit in the face of these trials that are going to come. The reward is absolutely awesome. We who understand are in the most important and exciting work on the face of the earth. We have the most important and exciting opportunity ever given to human beings to help prepare the way for the genuine return of God in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to this earth literally. And specific events, not little tiny things off in a corner, but major events are shaping up to bring about the preparatory things that God says will happen. As we approach that time, brethren, we and you brethren around the world, we must walk with God forever. We've got to learn to walk with God now and forever. If we don't walk with God now, we will not be walking with God forever. Do you walk with God now? Do you let Jesus Christ live his life within you now? Mr. Davis was describing some of that in his fine sermonette, how we reflect the love of God. Do you walk with God? Do you keep all of his commandments or do you water things down? Do you play little games? Do you, you, you know kind of cheat here and there in your spiritual life. If you're regularly walking with God in Bible study, prayer, meditation, and fasting, then you will come to know God, the God of the Bible, and then you can walk with Him forever. But the most important thing is we learn to do it now so we can do it forever. We need to learn to meditate about what is really important in life, not just the passing things around us, not the around, but the invisible God. That God seems way off to most people. 
And with books coming out like the Da Vinci Code and all this other stuff trying to put down the Bible and the reality of the great God who's beginning to intervene and work out His purpose here below, He's going to confuse millions of people. And yet there are hundreds of millions in Europe and elsewhere that are soon going to be enthralled with this great religious leader who eventually will perform miracles bringing fire down from heaven. So you have one group of people not believing in God at all and yet you have others who are going to be led off into a false religion. So it's a very interesting problem that we face. How do we reach these people and these conflicting ideas and these conflicting events? We need to learn to meditate and think, what is really important? Why was I born? And why did I grow up, many of you young people, in the church of God? And you older people, why did God call you to the church of God? Back in Genesis, turning to the Word of God, if you would follow me in your Bible, back in Genesis, the fifth chapter, God tells us about one of the earliest servants of God mentioned in the Bible, Enoch. Verse 21, Genesis 5, verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years after he begot Methuselah, you know, who became the oldest man of all. And Enoch walked with God 300 years after he begot Methuselah. And he had sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Somehow God caused him to disappear and later wrote a letter from another location on the earth, which you can prove if you study that in the Bible. Perhaps these men were after Enoch. He preached pretty powerfully. In a rotten generation, there were probably men out looking for him. But God took him away at that point in time. As you turn to chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, in the days of Noah... Then the Eternal saw that wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We think, boy, that's kind of a stretch. Yet, brethren, if you read about what's happening in the Middle East, about the Sunnis butchering the Shiites and the Shiites butchering the Sunnis, and you read about the events in Darfur, there have been full-page ads in our local paper and in the Wall Street Journal crying out to America, Please help these people. Hundreds of thousands of them are starving to death. Tens of thousands of people there being beaten, tortured, raped over and over and over and over all through that part of the world. Utterly humiliated in this world, which is Satan's world. And you read in Christianity Today magazine and World magazine, which is a Christian-type magazine, about the people, the so-called Christians in China who are trying to be Christians and how they're harassed, they're persecuted, they're often tortured. And yet, of course, we're trying to do all kinds of trade deals with China because we need their money. They have their national reserves now, the biggest national reserves that have ever been accumulated in human history, over $1 trillion. So they're a very powerful nation. And we're trying to find out and figure out how to deal with them. But all through the Orient, professing Christians are being put down and tortured and harassed and all through the Muslim world. So we have these things going on today in many, many ways. The man, the wickedness of man is great and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and the eternal was sorry that he'd man, made man and he was grieved. And so the eternal said, 
here in verse 7, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah, one man stood for God. One man walked with God. He found grace in the eyes of the ever-living one. When I read eternal, of course, it comes from this Hebrew word, Yahweh, which means the eternal or the ever-living one. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So here's one man who walked with God. And it goes, he goes on and shows then how God protected Noah and protected his family for his sake because here is a man who walked with God. You turn now to Genesis 17. Let's turn to Genesis 17. And here we come to the father of the faithful, as he's called later in the New Testament, Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abram, or Abraham we call him today, was 99 years old, the Eternal appeared to Abram and said, I am, you know, El Shaddai, as it is in the Hebrew. God Almighty, walk with me, or walk before me, walk with God, as it can be translated, and be blameless. The word blameless in those languages didn't mean perfect, it meant above reproach. Walk before God. Walk with God. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. You shall no longer be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. God said, I have made you. As we read in Romans 17, God speaks of those things which are not as though they were because whatever God says will happen has to happen and nothing can stop it. So he says, I have made you, even though it wasn't actually accomplished for many generations later. So God said that as Abram or Abram walked with God. He was the father of the faithful and he had that attitude of constantly spending time with God, thinking about God, obeying God, and so on. Back in Genesis 26, if you turn there, chapter 26, and we read here, well, let's turn to Genesis 25. I'd like to read a section here. Genesis 25, verse uh, 29. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau, remember his brother, who was kind of extra-worldly, we might say, came in from the field. He was weary, and Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. He felt he was just so tired he couldn't carry on. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. He had this awesome birthright to have all these nations descend from him rather than Jacob, his brother. And yet he was so selfish looking at the immediate. You know, when you look at the things around you, brethren, instead of looking, when you learn to understand, at the invisible God, I don't see that God. Maybe God will appear to some of us one of these days, but he hasn't, and we can't make it up and pretend it, or we will be blaspheming. But God may do that sometime in the person of Jesus Christ, at least, or an angel. But these men basically walked with the invisible God. On occasion, God appeared to some of them, not all of them. But you have to have faith in the invisible. The invisible God. 
You've got to learn to trust in that God. When you look around you, you see that all this overlapping, interlocking creation, all the overlocking, interrelated laws, you know, of everything around us, those laws demand a lawgiver. That awesome design demands a designer. Who made your brain? Where you can actually back off and laugh at yourself. And man, little tiny man can put these tremendous space vehicles out into outer space. Who gave us that capacity? Did it just happen? Warm algae in the ocean slime putting itself together? Or was there a great God who made us in his image? Those are the things to think about the most. Mankind doesn't want to think about those things. And God tells us many times why. I guess the clearest verse of all that I know of in the Bible is back in Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The normal human physical carnal mind does not want to obey God's law. The normal carnal mind of man does not want to admit to a God who is greater, has greater power and might and tell that person what to do. They bristle at that. How come God can tell me what to do? God, keep your nose out of my business, people say in effect. They don't say it directly, but in effect they're saying that to the God who created them and to the God who reveals himself in creation, to the God who reveals himself specifically in the Bible and his whole mind and way of life and through the Bible gives us specific prophecies affecting major nations, ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, things that happen. Many historians, honest historians know. You can't explain it any other way. So many of these prophecies were written many years, decades or sometimes hundreds of years in advance. And they happened and they happened and they're still happening. That God is alive. That God is real. But he's invisible. You can't see him, and therefore he seems way off to most people. You have to have faith in the invisible God, and that's a very important thing. He wasn't very real to Esau, and so Esau said here in verse 32, uh, Look, I'm about to die, so what profit is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So Esau swore to him about the birthright and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he went his way and drank and arose. And Esau thus despised his birthright. Please, folks, never despise your birthright. All of you in this room and all of you brethren around the world who may hear me later, you know if you followed our work and you followed the Bible that God has made us in his image and that God is in the process of making us even now spiritually in his image if we walk with God. That is, we will be born into the very family of God, and that great God intends that we be his full sons and daughters and live on a higher plane of existence, a higher level of existence in the very family and kingdom of God forever. And he's working with us, fashioning us, molding us, teaching us lessons in the meantime, preparatory to that. We must not despise the knowledge we've been given. There was a famine in the land, verse 20, or chapter 26 now, 
beside the first famine in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went with to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Then the Eternal appeared on this occasion, God in the person of Jesus Christ, and no man has ever seen God the Father, but the one who is Christ became Christ, the God of the Old Testament, Jesus, the ever-living one, the God of Israel, appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you and your descendants. I will give you all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands. And brethren, when you look at the land that God gave Abraham, his descendants was like the eastern half of the United States. It was all the little nation of Israel, but that whole nation of Syria, the nation of Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, as we call it today, many other nations, all that area west of the Euphrates River, extending clear down to Saudi Arabia and way up into northern Lebanon, perhaps beyond a vast area that God intended His people have. But His people were not just the Jews. There was no Jew in Abraham's day. Judah was the great-grandson of Abraham, as we know. Judah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those sons was named Judah. From him proceed the Jews. So God blessed him and eventually extended this promise to the whole world, as we know it, as it says in Romans chapter 4, that the true descendants of Abraham, which is you and me, if we follow our father Abraham and trust in the invisible God, will be given the whole world. All these things will happen because, verse 5, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, plural, Abraham God had God's commandments, my statutes and my laws. That's how Abraham walked with God. He walked with God in doing what God said and leaving his area and coming into the promised land and going down to Egypt for a while and going here and going there continually. But also he kept God's commandments as a whole way of life. He walked with God. And he then is the father of the faithful. So that's an important understanding. But Abraham and all of us, brethren, are going to be tested. Abraham was terribly tested, severely tested again and again. You read about his greatest test perhaps in Genesis 22. As we turn back to 22 here briefly, chapter 22, it came to pass after these things that God tested. I'm reading from the New King James Version. God tested Abraham and said, Abram, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll tell you about. Wow, what a test. And yet at the last minute, God said, Stop, and provided an animal. But he tested Abraham's attitude. And then, you know, at the end of that test, very powerful statement. He says, Do not lay your hand on the lad, verse 42, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. You have an awe of the great God who is most of the time invisible. You really fear God. You'll do what he says. You won't try to water it down. You fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. 
That was Abraham's greatest test. He had many other tests, of course, we could read about. So all of us have to be tested. God is not going to give us the universe. God is not going to give us glorified spirit bodies to live forever and ever and ever in power and glory and help Jesus Christ rule the nations of this earth, rule over cities, straighten things out, teach people God's ways. He can't give us that kind of power, really, sensibly, unless he tests us unless he knows where we stand and that we really will do what he says and not water things down. So that is an important concept and an important understanding. We've got to trust in the invisible God in many, many different ways. Turn to Genesis 45 at this point, if you would. Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to get a little bit of my tea up here while I can. Genesis chapter 45, here we read the story, of course, about Joseph, the descendant of Abraham. And here, Joseph had been sold into slavery, horrible thing by his own brothers, sold down into Egypt and put down in a prison for a number of years and finally exalted as the right-hand man of the whole Pharaoh and was ruling over the whole nation of Egypt with a great deal of glory. And his brothers came down, and of course, he didn't first reveal who he was. He tried to act like he didn't speak that language. They hadn't seen him for decades, and he tried to look different the way he acted and dressed. But he finally could not restrain himself before those who stood by him, and he cried out to his servants, the Egyptians, Make everyone get out of here! So no one stood with him, while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Very moving scene when you read the whole story. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the palace of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? I'm here. It's me. It's a very moving story. But his brothers could not answer. They were dismayed. They were scared to death. We sold him into slavery. What is he going to do to us? And Joseph said, Please come near to me. And they came near And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The great God who guides the rise and fall of nations. The great God who guides all things. He guided this situation. So I would be here when there was starvation around elsewhere in the other nations. And I could be down here. For these two years, the famines have been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me to before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. You see, God intended to preserve and to bless the descendants of Abraham, and out of him would come kings over nations, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He said, don't feel too bad, fellas. I'm sure he didn't like it, but he was willing to forgive, and he didn't hurt them. He actually blessed them. God is in charge, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hasten and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't tarry, don't wait around. (laughs) Wow. My son, Joseph, is alive. 
we read Jacob saying later, these things happened, brethren, because God was going to guide this lineage and produce the greatest nations on the face of the earth through Abraham's descendants coming right down to our time. But he tested Joseph again and again in many ways along the way before he had that great opportunity. You find over in Psalm 105, if you turn there, Psalm 105, and here is an interesting thing coming even later. And remember, as you prove it, each of you has to prove it to yourself, but I've done that. I base my life on it. The Bible is the mind of God. It reveals the way God is and the way God thinks. And here in Psalm 105, why it says in this wonderful passage, I'm going to read more than I need to perhaps, but, Oh, give thanks to the eternal. Call upon his name. Verse 1. Make known his deeds among the peoples. I'm trying to do that to you right now. Let's review the great things God has done from time to time. He's done wonderful things. Make known his deeds. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the eternal. Seek the eternal. Learn to go after God. Don't be afraid to go after the most important thing in the universe. Go after God. Seek God and his strength. Seek his face evermore he has remembered his covenant forever verse 8 the word which he commanded the covenant which he made with abraham and his oath to isaac and confirmed it to jacob for a statute and he shows how he led the peoples of israel here and there verse 13 when they went from one nation to another from one kingdom to another he permitted no one to do them wrong yet he reproved kings for their sake saying do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. And you know how that happened. And then Joseph was led by God to save up and to save up all this wheat, all this food, so he could feed not only Egypt, but all these nations around. What peoples on the earth today have that kind of, uh, of attitude? When the peoples of India were starving a number of years ago, what nation sent them 600 ships, 600 full of food? United States of America. And we've been helped in that effort down through the years by Britain and Canada and Australia as we rebuilt Europe after the First World War. You think if the Germans had won, they would rebuild us? There's not any time in history where you see that. Again, after World War II, we had the Marshall Plan and rebuilt Western Europe. We've been beneficent. We have the nature of our father Joseph. And we've done these things, and God has given us the greatest blessings, the greatest wealth of any peoples on the face of the earth. And we need to thank God for that. Talk about a time of thanksgiving. We still have it. The prophecies are beginning. We're at a tipping point right now. The dollar's just beginning to slip, and the American prestige is beginning to slip big time. But it hasn't happened enough to really scare the fire out of most people yet. They don't get it. But in the next three to six years, I think they will get it. And if we're out in the forefront, if we are, in fact, the spear point of the work of God to get this message out, to preach it powerfully, heartfeltly to the world, the world will not like that. Some of us, as Mr. Davis intimated, could be beat up or thrown in prison. Some few could use, lose their lives in that process. I know that. 
We need to understand that. We who are ministers need to have the right balance to preach this truth as strongly as we can within reason, not to get thrown off television or radio or whatever, and yet to get the message out powerfully so those whom God is calling can understand. This has got to be done. Somewhere on earth, a church of God, a people of God will do that work. But these people are going to have to understand. So he had saved up this grain, as the Americans do. We called for a famine and destroyed all the provision of bread. And verse 17, God sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons. Joseph was tested, brethren. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the eternal tested him. Joseph was tested. He was hurting year after year. I think it was 17 years that he was put down and had to wait and wait. Or was it 13 years? They get those mixed up a little bit. I think it was more like 13 years. They need review, but a long time, over a decade that he had to wait on God. Many of us give up if we're tested 13 weeks or 13 months. But Joseph had to be tested for year after year after year, being put down and thrown in prison for part of it and having his feet in fetters where he was physically hurting. So God tested Joseph as he does all of us, but God causes all things to work for good And so in that, Joseph learned lessons. He learned to put his faith in the invisible God. And then God used him to bless his people, to bless his own family, to bless other nations all around with food that he'd saved up during all the good years of the good harvest before the bad years set in. So God guides things to work for good. God has guided Abraham and Joseph's descendants through the decades even until now. And we need to realize that. And in this Thanksgiving weekend, think about that. Most of you read the United States and British Commonwealth and Prophecy. But it's good to reread that once in a while and see how God guided our ancestors through the Middle East, brought them into Europe, later brought them over here. And they had a certain fear of God, as Mr. Ames was reading about the declaration of our first president, you know, for Thanksgiving, George Washington Later presidents like Abraham Lincoln and many others talked about God in a very heartfelt way. They knew there was a real God. They believed in that. But now our nation is losing that. But God has blessed us and blessed us with the choicest blessings of all the earth. And between us, the British and American peoples, won World War I. We won World War II. We won every major war until the last few years. And now we're beginning to have a sort of iffy type thing in Vietnam a kind of an iffy type situation in Iraq. We're not going to turn tail and run perhaps and be run out of town totally, but we may have to back off without total victory. And bit by bit, this kind of thing is happening to us. Instead of our national prestige increasing, it's going to be decreasing and our dollar is going to be decreasing and our way of life is going to be decreasing because we run up the greatest national debt of any peoples in the history of the universe, frankly. No other nation has ever come close to us. And we're going to have to pay the piper, as many economists have pointed out, at some point in the next 10 or 15 years. These things are going to hit, and it's going to hit hard. And those who don't know God will be astonished. They'll say, what's going on? 
that those of us who know God will know what's going on. God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He's given us all these things. We're spoiled. Our children are spoiled. They have everything. They take everything for granted. But they don't fear God, many of them, even in God's church. So we have to get back to that understanding. Abraham then blessed Abram's descendants. God blessed Abram's descendants, I should say, Joseph's descendants, and all the people that we know he's used in modern times. But also, Abram was the father of the faithful. And in a spiritual sense, his descendants are been, are been, have been blessed and are being blessed as well. Let's turn to, if you would, to Romans now. Romans chapter 4, and notice this. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say, Paul write, writes, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abram was justified by works, he has something by which to boast, if he's just earned it, but not before God. Of course, anything we do is puny compared to what God does. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, that attitude of truly believing God, putting your faith and trust in the invisible God, saying, I know you're there, I see the beauty that you've created, this beautiful earth, the beautiful plants, everything around us, the universe, everything works right. I know you're there and you're right. And as you read God's Word and begin to see those things in God's Word, God becomes more real to you. As it tells us in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And as you hear the Word of God and read the Word of God, God becomes more real and that very action builds faith. The more you drink into this word, the more faith you will tend to have. Then you will know that God is in charge, that God is doing these things. You'll see it. You're not trying to imagine it. You will see it to the degree that people obey the Ten Commandments in any nation or any family. They're blessed to the degree that people obey the Ten Commandments and walk with God in any church. They're blessed. Some of the Protestants are blessed in this area around here because we have more evangelical Christians. Some of them are very sincere people. They mean well. To that degree, their families are better off. To that degree, they're giving to others and sending missionaries out to help others. To that degree, they will be better off. But the more people turn away from God, the more they're going to be cursed and have trouble. And it works that way. It's a very living law, just like the law of gravity. If you believe God, you are blessed. And God accounts that attitude of love for God and faith in God together. If you really trust some someone, if you really love someone, I should say, you will tend to trust him. If you really love your father and mother, a little child, their only God, in a sense, they know is their parents. Mommy holds the little baby in her arms. She nurses him on her breast. And then that little child looks to mommy, loves mommy, generally knows mommy is the greatest thing in the universe. And then daddy's sort of second as he comes along greater later. Maybe the child looks more and more to daddy. I remember one time one of my children said to me, I forget which son it was. I actually better not guess. He said, daddy, is God as big as you are? Well, I'm not very big, you know, physically, but shows the little boy. Is God as big as you are? We are gods to our little children. You see, because that's the only one that they know of as their creator, their provider, their protector, the one who watches over them. And so then that gradually has to be transferred to the true Father, God the Father, who made us all indirectly and created this whole process here on earth. And we look to Him. But if you love your parents, really love them, 
then you will tend to believe them because you'll know that they love you and so on, and you will believe them. Love and faith go very, very close together. So God knows that. So this faith was counted as righteousness. And it shows down here in verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith uh, which he had while yet uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. So again, he's called the father of the faithful, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness which might be imputed to them also. And then again, down here in verse uh, verse 16, Therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. So we don't get saved just by keeping the commandments in our own strength. And of course, he's talking here about the whole legal system for that matter. But you don't get saved by doing so many push-ups spiritually. You get saved by God's mercy. But then through God's Spirit in you, you, of course, you've committed yourself to growing in grace and in knowledge through Christ living in you. And that then, that attitude of faith in God, knowing He's there, that God is love, therefore His way is right, His law is right, His commandments are right, His promises are sure, His kingdom will come. All those attitudes are an attitude of righteousness as far as God is concerned. It shows love, it shows loyalty, it shows faith. So love and faith, they're very closely intertwined. Abraham trusted in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There have been men of faith and women of faith down through time. We know how Abraham walked with God and God blessed him. We know how Joseph walked with God and did what God said and God blessed him. We know how Moses walked with God and served God so powerfully and God blessed him. We know how David walked with God. Yes, men like Moses and David made big mistakes, but in their life as a whole, they walked with God and God blessed them and blessed them and blessed them and used them as an example of Christ. And then the apostles came along and they didn't change God's whole way of life. As Jesus said, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments, as we just heard in the sermonette, Matthew nineteen seventeen, And they went and taught. That way of life, of course, as even the Apostle Paul said many times, if you read all of his writings, as I taught them for about 30 years in the epistles of Paul class, I'd be glad to debate any human being on the earth. Did Paul do away with God's law? No, no way did he even remotely do that. Otherwise, he could not have written so many scriptures, but one in particular, you could just point out, 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. That is, they're not some big thing spiritually, of course. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's what matters. Keeping the commandments, plural, of God. Do you think Paul didn't know what he was talking about? This man who was trained at the feet of Gamaliel and all the intricacies of the Jewish law, of course he knew what he was talking about. Keeping the commandments, plural, of God is what matters, that way of life. So the early church of God kept God's commandments. And you read the 15th chapter of Gibbons Rome, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and he points that out. 
they were an obedient church and they looked forward to the millennium and Christ coming back to the earth as a triumphant band of saints, as Gibbon points out. A real government of God to be set up on this earth based on God's law. Many of the early historians knew that. Then the Dark Ages came along. The Catholic Church, an awful lot of stupidity, of course, in the Da Vinci Code. I enjoyed reading the book. I did read the book, by the way, to see what it was. Well-written novel, very interesting. But if you really know the Bible, it doesn't shake your faith a little bit. You see how he kept saying things a little bit wrong here and a little bit wrong there, plus inserting every possible doubt in people's mind he could possibly do along the way. But he pointed out how under Constantine they changed, of course, the Sabbath to Sunday, and they did away with God's holy days and brought in Christmas and Easter because it was easier to bring in the pagans around them by introducing all the pagan holidays and all this kind of thing as he brings out in the Da Vinci Code. And so we know that God allowed a great falling away to take place, a tremendous apostasy at that time after the death of the original apostles. But we find in history a little thin thread, a little thin thread of human beings called the Church of God who kept the seventh-day Sabbath and who kept the Passover on the 14th day. Some kept others of the holy days, some didn't. Why did they keep them all? Many of them did not even have complete Bibles. In fact, the New Testament was just being still put together and written, and the printing press hadn't even yet been invented. Many of them did the best they could with what they had to do with, but you find that. And then you come down to, of course, the 17, 16, 17, 1800s with Roger Williams and other Sabbath keepers coming here from Britain to Rhode Island and elsewhere in the United States. And you find then the Church of God, the Seventh-day Church of God being established. But the church was kind of weak and it didn't have much power and didn't do very much. And God describes it in Revelation chapter 3. He calls it the Sardis Church. And that particular church, of course, didn't do very much. And it was a very, very weak church. And, of course, they were spiritually dead And God indicates that very clearly, as a matter of fact, in that prophecy in Revelation chapter 3, that they were dead. They had the name of God, but they were dead. The great apostasy had taken place back after the death of the apostles, and the full truth had never been fully put together again. But then God raised up one man named Herbert W. Armstrong in the state of Iowa back in the early or late 1920s and early 1930s. And that man being an advertising man and also a banking journalist who had to prove things to these bankers using a lot of analysis of things, used that analytical approach that he had to dig out and dig out and dig out and put together the whole Bible and went back in history as well and made it all make sense. And you can compare it today. I came out from Joplin, Missouri as a 19-year-old boy. And when I came to Ambassador College, I came out to disprove or to check up on Mr. Armstrong. He laughed about that later, that he knew I went all over the campus saying, where does the money come from? Who counts the money? Where do the Armstrongs come from? What's going on? Well, he never called me and said, Rod, why are you doing that? He said, I wasn't afraid of you. I had nothing to hide. (laughs) This was years later after I was ordained. He found out from others, of course. They went and told him. I guess I should have known they would, but I was just a kid. I didn't know. And I checked up. The first letter I wrote, my mother wrote me from Missouri. She says, Rod, don't let, don't be taken in by any cult. 
there are a lot of cults out in California. And she sent me a, a, an article out of the old Liberty magazine. I used to sell Ladies' Home Journal and Woman's Home Companion and the Liberty magazine. I had a magazine route and go to these apartments like little boys do and sell newspapers and magazines and so on. Liberty doesn't exist, I don't think, anymore as a magazine, but there was a well-known magazine called that. And they had this article about the religious sects or cults of California. And she tried to warn me. I wrote back and said, Mother, you know how independent I am. And indeed, she knew that because I had gone away from home somewhat against their wishes and came out and other things. I said, the door swings both ways. So if I don't like it, I say it's a cult, I'll get out. So I checked up and checked out and checked up, of course, and I began to find that it made sense. And the young people there were so different from the ones that I'd grown up with for 19 years in the Methodist church. And many of my friends were in the Presbyterian and Baptist and Lutheran and the other Protestant churches. And they had a different purpose in life. And they weren't lying and they weren't fornicating and they weren't, you name it. A different way of life. They weren't all nicey-nice. They stood for something. But they knew about the prophecies. And we'd read and discuss prophecy Friday nights up on the third floor of the dormitory. Us fellows, we'd have beer and wine and cheese and, and uh, crackers and just a sort of a bull session talking about world events and prophecy. And I began to think, wow, all these things are real And now, 57 years later, I see that a lot of those things have already happened that we were discussing back at that time where Mr. Armstrong said, you know, American Britain had all these great sea gates, the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, the Bab el-Mandeb, the southern entrance of the Red Sea, and the Straits of Singapore, the Malacca Straits, all those great sea gates were going to be taken away if we didn't repent. Now they're all taken away except two. Out of about 10 major sea gates, only two are left. The Falkland Islands controlling uh, Cape Horn and the Gibraltar, uh, Rock of Gibraltar controlling the Strait of Gibraltar. Those two, and those two are now in danger, as you know, as I've repeated so often. One or both of them may be taken away in the next few years. One by one, he's the only one who said... All these other men, Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham, and Oral Roberts back in those days, and many others preaching on prophecy, and Her- uh, Lindsay, as they wrote the book, uh, Great Late Planet Earth, they didn't understand. They never talked about Russia being put down and the nations of Eastern Europe breaking free, but Mr. Armstrong did specifically. He says those nations have got to break free to make it possible for the Eastern leg of the beast. And sure enough, in late 1989 and 1990, it all began to happen. One after the other after the other it was astonishing. But that's what that man said. You say it happened after he died. Does that make any difference? Does that really make any difference? With God, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. The sun and moon and stars move quietly up in the heavens. We die. We come and go. God does not come and go. His will stands. And that great God is working out His purpose. Some of us may not fulfill our calling, but God's calling will continue. God's purpose will stand. But we must not despise our birthright, brethren. We have been given awesome understanding of this book, of the whole purpose of God, of the great huge events that God is working out here below and how He's blessed our nations and blessed our people and wants to bless us. 
with eternal life and the family of God, the kingdom of God forever, if we'll just be willing to seek him first and do what he says and walk with God and walk with the invisible God, even though we can't see him, to put our faith and trust in that God and not water things down. Back at Jeremiah, if you turn there, Jeremiah 17, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, point here, Jeremiah 17. God tells us this, Thus says the Eternal, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Some people might say, Well, you trust in Mr. Armstrong. No, I don't. All our older brethren know that. He made mistakes. He was very human. But he gave us most of the keys of understanding. God used that man more than any man in hundreds of years to open up this understanding to us. In late 1933 and 1934, we're carrying on that work. And as you watch us, unless we turn aside, unless we turn aside, you're going to see this little tiny work have an impact that will probably astonish some of you. You'll say, wow, we didn't know what was going to happen way back there five or seven or eight years ago. And suddenly the work springs forth to tremendous power as we walk with God because God is not limited. He is not limited. He can use us powerfully. But we must not be afraid of people around us, brethren, a lot of you, in the sense, are not afraid of them, but you think, well, what will my friends think? What will my relatives think? What will happen to my business? What will happen this or that or something else? Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who is so concerned about what will people think, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the eternal, for he'll be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes. He shall inhabit parched places in the wilderness and assault land not inhabited. He's just going to shrivel up, in other words. Blessed is the man who trusts in the ever-living one. Blessed, my brethren, is the one who trusts in that great invisible God who has guided our nation, who has guided his church down through the dark ages, who has used a man, Herbert W. Armstrong, to raise up the knowledge of the truth and given that to us on a silver platter for which we can be very grateful and very thankful and be willing to carry that truth on and not water it down and do the work of God with all our hearts. Yes, blessed is the man who trusts in the ever-living one and whose hope is in the eternal. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its root by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things. Our own mind, we call that heart, that attitude of mind, will fool us. We want to do what we want to do. We resent a real God who says, do this, if it's something we don't humanly want to do. Don't trust your own heart. God tells us elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And that's the truth, brethren. I can't trust in my heart. I've got to trust in this book and realize if I get off away, sometimes in my thoughts or something, things will start going wrong. And I know God is jerking me up short as his servants say, watch out, Rod. You're being too loose. Something's going wrong in your life and things will start going wrong. Don't trust your own heart and don't trust the people around you. Trust in the invisible God who inspired this book. 
the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the eternal, search the heart. I test. Yes, God is testing you and testing me, brethren. He really is. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways. He wants us to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to let Jesus Christ live his life in us. As I said in my sermon several weeks ago, we need to ask ourselves constantly, really, through the day, what would Jesus really do? And I got more specific. I gave a sermon two or three years ago when this thing first came out about what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus really do? And as you really studied the Bible in detail, you know what Jesus really would do because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever in almost every situation. You can figure that out. God is testing us. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. What's the fruit of the Catholic Church all over the earth, wherever it's been? What's the fruit of the Protestant churches? What is the fruit going to be of democracy? So far, it seems to be good because people think that we got our national blessings because of democracy. They don't realize we got our national blessings because of the promises given to Abraham. But they're going to come to realize that later and understand that God's government is actually the best kind of government. And certainly when Jesus Christ is here running it, there'll be no question about that at all. But we have to come to have faith in that as a way of life. Turn to Romans chapter 8, if you would, at this point. Romans, brethren, Romans chapter 8 in your New Testament. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 12. Romans 8. Therefore, Paul writes, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You're not supposed to live like all the other people around you, just according to what you want to do at the moment, according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Of course, he's not talking just about the death that comes to every mind, but eternal death. God's not going to torture you forever, but he can't give you glory and power and immortality and have you say all the time, here's the way I look at it. Here's what my friends say. Here's what the atheists say. Here's what I want. Here's the way I look at it. Well, God is not concerned about the way I look at it or you look at it. He knows best. He really is God. So we've got to get over that attitude at some point. You will die, but if by the Spirit, by God's Spirit within you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You'll live forever. For as many as are led by, some of us have been begotten by God's Spirit. I've known of many people in the church I felt were begotten by God's Spirit, but they fell away or they watered it down. And I'm not sure if they're even going to be in God's kingdom. I won't name them. But some of them became leading ministers that I knew I loved and I did love them, still love their memory. Work right with them. Help teach many of them. But they turned aside. And that's a terrible shame. But you have to be led by the Spirit. These are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, as it is in the New International Version. In this case, translates it correctly. It can be translated as a word to make a son. And some of the modern translations show that. Sonship, not adoption. God doesn't say, you're a chicken, but I'll just call you my son. No, the spirit of sonship by whom we cry out, Daddy, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We have his nature, his spirit in us to a limited degree. We sense that help that we're getting from outside, help to overcome ourselves, help to love our neighbors, help to forgive others, help to change and to grow that we never had before. And we begin to realize, yes, we have got had help from God's spirit. We've been begotten. And so we are now children of God, begotten children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, we're not yet inheritors. We're not in God's kingdom. We're not spirit yet. And joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Yes, we're going to have to go through trial after trial after trial. As Churchill said, I can only offer you blood, tears, toil, and sweat. And brethren, we need to understand that today. The way into God's kingdom is not like falling off a log. Are you people and you young people out there, and I know we have a number of younger visitors here. I didn't know them would be here. I'm not preaching to them. I wrote about sermon before I ever knew they would be here, so I, I hope they can understand that. I have other young people sitting over here. But I do want the young people to understand You've got to be willing to give up. You've got to be willing to sacrifice if you're going to be in God's kingdom. Our crusade is a lot more important than any human crusade that's ever been launched in the history of the universe, when you understand it, where God is reproducing himself. If we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. We're going to be born into the very family of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of that shall be revealed not to us, but in us. Notice that. We don't come up to the foot of the mountain and say, oh, look at that glory up there. That glory is revealed in us. We are born of God. And suddenly we are exalted. Our body has changed to spirit. We're on a different level of existence. We come into a different plane of existence. And we are spirit beings in the family of God. And we can go to Alpha Zatar. We say, I want to be there. And we're there. I'm not kidding. That's exactly what God does. Oh, you say you're limited to the speed of light. Who made the speed of light? God did. Is he limited by what he made? Of course not. God can think it and be there. And so can we when we're in God's kingdom. We can't imagine the blessings we'll have. But we're going to be able to use those blessings to help others immeasurably. So someday we're going to have that understanding and really have that blessing. We'll have that glory I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation is suffering. People are crying out for help everywhere. The oceans are being polluted. The water is being polluted. Everything around us is being polluted. Even the nature itself is crying out. Please help us. And the great God's going to do that. We've reached that point, that tipping point in human history where within the next 10 to 25 years that will take place. Perhaps sooner than that, but let's just say that in round numbers. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of me who subjected it in hope that, that, that God's purpose would stand because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, listen to this, groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Wow. 
Brethren, we're going to have an opportunity to help people way beyond what we think. And I hope you young people out there in Australia, New Zealand, and the Philippines, and Britain, and Europe, all over can understand, and all over the United States and Canada, opportunities that are way beyond what we think. We know I'm going to keep, keep your place here or turn back. I'm going to go briefly to 1 Corinthians 6, which I often turn to, but I want to do this for part of this sermon here near the end. What is part of our purpose in this creation, in this recreation, this becoming of the sons of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Don't you know that the saints are being trained to be rulers in a few years? Why would you go down to some worldly court, he says, to those really converted in God's church? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? This is not often some you know, obscure chapter of Isaiah or Daniel somewhere. This is right square in the middle of the New Testament. The saints will judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? We human beings, they are ministering spirits to us now. There is a spirit world all around us and God is going to make that more real as these events begin to unfold. But we're going to judge those angels in due time or manage them, as the word may be. How much more things that pertain to this life? You see, we're being trained now to be kings and priests, as you've heard me read and all our ministers read, perhaps dozens of times. The true saints of God will be kings and priests, rulers and teachers in tomorrow's world. And boy, the world is crying out for us. Think about that. Now is our tremendous opportunity, folks, and you young people, to think about what our future is. Let us not despise our birthright. If you've grown up in the church and you know these things, prepare for your opportunity. Now, think about John, John F. Kennedy, our president. He got this whole movement going that tens of thousands of young people responded to. The Peace Corps. He sent vibrant, idealistic young people off to help in Central and South America and Asia and Africa and the Middle East to help people to straighten things out. And very for a short time, humanly, because it's not the whole way of God, it didn't last, but they did a certain amount of good, no doubt. They were sincere. But we who know the truth, what about us? Think about it. Think about the billions of people around the world that are literally crying out. Hundreds of millions in Africa are getting AIDS. Whole nations are being decimated because they misuse sex. Some of them get drugs, but the vast majority are caused by illicit sex, sex outside of marriage. Simple to solve. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But they're not taught that way of life. But they will be by us in a few years. Others, of course, are being starved. They're being tortured. Tens of thousands of them are being raped regularly, gang raped often in Darfur and Somalia and the Congo. I could read you clipping after clipping. You ought to identify with that. These, are, these women are human beings, sometimes little girls right down six or eight years old being torn to bits when you understand it. But these gang rapes of these human baboons that take advantage of them. God have mercy on these men that do these things. We're going to have to say, stop, that is enough, and straighten that out. 
in a very few years as Christ comes back. All over Asia, in China, people are being tortured and are scared. Many of the people in the country are not beginning to share with the blessings we read about in the big cities in China. And there have been many articles about the two Chinas. Some are being wealthy in the cities, but the majority are not sharing in that. There's beginning to be a tension there. Maybe a civil war, a blow-up coming. In India, the same thing. And then vast millions, tens of millions in Bangladesh and Afghanistan and Mongolia and all these other nations of Asia suffering, starving, doing without, malnutrition, all kinds of things going wrong, disease. You read about it all the time. Human beings that need, they need help. Who's going to give them that help? Who's going to teach them the right way of life so they can have help from God? All over Central and South America, you can travel down, if I've done, to Mexico City. I've been there three or four times. You see some big plazas downtown, but you go out and you, the shanties all over, people doing without. So not a good way of life, frankly, at all. That's one reason so many are fleeing over here. Central America is even worse. Vast areas of South America, the people are being oppressed by rotten dictators who will kill them if they get out of line. A lot of them are starving and doing without. And all of us are familiar, I trust, with the Middle East. The horrible snake pit that has become of people butchering each other. They said in the paper the other day, 160 died. I guess it was day before yesterday. But then the radio said, no, it was over 200 when they counted all the bodies. And additional hundreds of bodies are coming in to the morgues all over Baghdad regularly. Men, generally, that have been murdered and they've been tortured. They show signs of torture. Men literally torturing, torturing one another, and they kill, they're dying in agony. Is that God's way? Does God want His world to end up that way? No. Is it going to get worse? Yes. Who's going to stop it? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Lord God of the armies of Israel. He's going to stop it. And we will help Him. And we will have opportunity to teach these madmen God's ways. And to say, stop, that's enough. Here is the way, walk you in it. As it tells us back in Isaiah, God's servants will tell people at that time, you young people can be part of that in a very few years, to be taught by God now, to learn God's ways. Some of you serving in God's work in various ways, getting ready. And when Christ comes, you'll be there, be leaders, whether you're physical or spiritual. God can work that out and you can too. But to help these people, these people need help. And you are the wave of the future, you young people. And you older folks as well, because we're going to be made young again. <laughs> God will give us more strength when we have spirit bodies. We won't get tired anymore. and We won't get sick anymore. We will be young with a body like Jesus Christ. So let's understand, boy, we have a wonderful opportunity. We have a wonderful challenge. We have an opportunity to just change this whole world under Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we need to deeply, profoundly appreciate that. So let's turn back to Romans chapter 8 now. And God tells us here, he says here in verse 28, and we know that all things in the end, people will learn lessons. They will learn that this way of life they're in today in America, their wife swapping, their lesbianism, their homosexuality, the drug addiction, blowing their minds. It's not good. It doesn't make anyone happy in the end. But all things work together for good 
if people are willing to learn their lessons when God calls them, for those who love God, you see, who are willing to listen to Him, and to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We're going to be fully like Christ. Christ's face shines like the sun, God tells us in Revelation 1. So will ours in a few years, if we make it, if we learn to trust in the invisible God and walk with that God, will be made like the invisible, like the image of God, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. Are His brothers going to be like snakes or donkeys or sheep or, or whatever? No! My siblings are like me. And my sons have other brothers. They're just like they are human beings. The same level of existence. God does not reproduce after a chicken or a donkey. God reproduces. He brings forth after His kind and we will be like God. And Christ's brothers will be like Him. Spirit beings for whom He foreknew, He predestined that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Reading again. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, He glorified. And his plan and purpose in advance, God has said, I'm going to make you my full son if you learn to put your faith and trust in me and do what I say and that trust. Glorified. What can we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Nobody. No thing in all the universe can stand against the purpose of God and the plan of God. So let's thank God this weekend and all our lives for His magnificent purpose that we're made in His image to be His sons, that we're going to have the opportunity to straighten out this whole world in a few years. And I hope all of us can really realize that. Thank God for that. Thank God for His calling. And let us faithfully walk with God, talk with God, commune with God, fellowship with God, and walk with the invisible God in faith and trust now and forever.